Good morning. I'm Pastor Lawson. If we haven't gotten to meet, I'd love to meet you. Uh, as, we, as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we come to this, uh, this, really the start of Jesus' public ministry, a uh, very kind of integral uh, and inaugural passage, inaugural uh, message for Jesus and certainly Luke's introduction to Jesus' public ministry. But before we, we dive into this story, I want to begin by flashing forward about three years to the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the beginning. I want to flash to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry when he's hanging on the cross between two criminals. Uh, and I want, to, I want to point out, I want us to just notice these two different responses to Jesus, Okay. Uh, there's one criminal on his right, one on his left. Uh, this is Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. That's one response. Verse 40, but the other answered rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In our text, Jesus, verses 14 and 15, tell us he returns to Galilee uh, from the wilderness of temptation. He's just been baptized, right? The father has spoken. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's been called the son of God in power. Uh, he's been led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, he has been victorious over the devil, as we saw last week. And he returns now, it says, in the power of the spirit. And news about him is spreading everywhere. He's teaching in the synagogues of Galilee, this region, uh, and the people are praising him. They're speaking well of him. There's, he's, he's doing amazing things. And he comes now to Nazareth, Podunk, small town Nazareth, where he grew up. This is, uh, this is a very small town. Everyone knows everyone, right? Everyone knows too much about everyone. I don't know if you uh, grew up in a small town. You know how that is. Some of the adults here remember Jesus as a kid playing in the fields. Some of them grew up with him. They, they knew him as a child. Some of them uh, saw him learn to work with and, and be a carpenter with Joseph, his father. They probably, you know, had a table or a shelf in their house that Jesus had worked on or repaired. Verse 16 says, as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Okay, Jesus is always, it says, he's, this is what he usually does. He's always in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Uh, this is his practice. He worships with God's people and he's here in Nazareth in his hometown on the Sabbath day and he stands up to read, uh, to read and to, to teach there. So he's in his hometown uh, with people who've known him his whole life. Okay, uh, and, and not only people who've known him his whole life, but who've been hearing reports, it says. They've been hearing about what he's been doing in the region and so they're, they're excited to see him again and to hear and to see him do some of these things that he's been doing. A couple years ago in, uh, in my, my previous neighborhood, the neighborhood my wife and I lived in previously, uh, we, we, were actually, uh, we were actually neighbors with, uh, with Pastor Barry and, and Carolyn. We, we lived down uh, in, in their neighborhood with them. And we had a different neighbor 
um, and, who, who was a, an interesting person. He was an interesting guy. Uh, we had a really good relationship. He was, he was in his 50s. Um, he, he lived with his mom, uh, and he was, he was unemployed. Uh, so he was always there at the house. Uh, he had this garden out front, that he, kind of eclectic garden that he took care of uh, really well. And, uh, and, and he, was, he was always there. He, it was kind of nice. He would watch the neighborhood, kind of let us know if anything fishy was going on. Um, and we had a great relationship. He was kind to us. He was kind to our kids. He, he helped us with stuff. We helped him with stuff. Uh, we had a, a really good relationship. Uh, and then one, one day, uh, we had this, at this house, we, we had students over quite often, um, uh, you know, we, we, uh, the youth group would come over uh, weekly. And, uh, and, and one of the, the days that, that people were coming over, I don't know if we were having a gathering or if we were meeting there to leave to go on a, uh, some kind of service project or something. Uh, I came out the door and, uh, and he was in his front yard and he was clearly really agitated. There were students coming and he was clearly really agitated. And, uh, and he was kind of yelling at the parents. And, and so I came out and I was, hey, what's going on? You know, like, hey, how's it going, man? Uh, and, and he started just, just cussing me out. Um, he started threatening to call the cops. And he was really upset uh, that, that some parents had parked in front of his house, like, on, like, you know, just right in front of his house on the curb. Uh, not on the curb, but just on the street uh, in front of his house. And, um, and he was... He was Livid, uh, and he was, you know, and there was a little seventh grade. I don't remember who it was. A little seventh grade boy just standing there in the yard, like, <laughs> I'm like let's go inside. Uh, but it was, it was very stressful. And and after that, uh, I tried to, you know, talk to him more and make up to it. But I, he, I was just dead to him. Right? He would totally ignore me. He was always in his front yard. But whenever I would come out to get in the car, he would not even acknowledge my existence, not look at me, not talk to me. Um, I was dead to him. And, and when I think back and play back that interaction in my, uh, in my mind, I, it just, I just have this, it's puzzling to me. Why was he so angry? What possibly, I must be missing something. What possibly could have made him that upset? And, and that's a similar feeling to what, to what I get with this story. Now you read about Jesus going to his hometown, the people, they, they, they're amazed, they, it seems to be going well, and then all of a sudden, they're enraged, and they try to kill him. That's a big flip. What happened? Why are they so angry? And I hope we'll be able to see as we walk through the story and understand a little bit of, of why they are, why, why they get so upset. We're gonna look at, at four, uh, four things today in this story. Jesus' mission statement. We're going to see the people's doubt and misunderstanding. We're going to see how Jesus challenged them. Jesus has challenged them. And then ultimately why they are angry and why they reject Jesus. Hopefully we can understand that. Let's pray and, and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, uh, thank you for bringing us here this morning uh, for your grace and your mercy, just letting us gather together. Um, Lord, as we come, I, I just beg you that we would be uh, like the good soil in your parable. Um, I pray that, that Satan would not be able to come in and snatch up the word so that it doesn't bear fruit. I pray that we wouldn't be those who, who spring up quickly and then go away and then with joy, but then are, don't have any roots. I pray that we would not be those who, who accept the word, but then the cares and, and the worries of life choke it out. But Lord, would you make us good soil that hears your word, understands it, stands under it, lets your word judge us and, and encourage us and challenge us so that we can bear fruit 100, 200, 500, bear fruit to eternal life. 
Would you make us the good soil, Lord? Only you can do this. Would you remove the barriers in our heart, the rocks and the weeds and all the stuff that would keep that from happening? We need you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. First, Jesus' mission statement. Jesus' mission statement. The drama here in the story is just fantastic. Uh, It's really great. The scroll is given to him, right? So the scroll that contains the words of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus starts by reading his text. And he, he opens up to Isaiah chapter 61 and reads these things. This is Isaiah 61 from verses one and two. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down to teach. Okay, he's, he, the drama, he, you know, he, he reads it, Hands it, hands it away, right? The, the attendant takes it and he sits down, which is how they would teach. They would teach from a sitting position. So it's like he steps up to the podium to teach. And it says, every eye's on him, right? Every eye's on him. They're expectant. They're waiting. They, they, they want to see for themselves what they've been hearing about. This Jesus, he teaches with authority. Like Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. Like Nazareth, he teaches with authority. He, he does miracles. I can't wait to see this for myself. And then it says, with every eye on him, he began to, by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, this would have been shocking. It would have been shocking for people who knew the book of Isaiah, as all good Jews did. Isaiah 61, one through six, is near the end of the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's the pinnacle of God's comfort for his people in exile. Okay, in, in this passage, um, the, the Messiah servant, the one that Isaiah's been talking about, at the beginning of Isaiah, he talks about a Messiah servant who's gonna come and he's gonna establish his kingdom you know, on the throne of his father, David. He's, he's gonna rule forever. The increase of his government, there will be no end, right? This is the Messiah who's gonna come deliver his people. And then in Isaiah, you can think of Isaiah 53, he talks about a servant, a suffering servant, the one who's gonna be, be oppressed and afflicted, someone who's gonna give his life as a ransom for many, and, and, you know, the, the mystery is always, who is this? But then in Isaiah 61, the Messiah servant, this, this, one, this, this one of God, this Messiah, actually speaks himself. This is not Isaiah describing him. This is him, his words. Right? The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's talking. And the message is good news for God's people. And it's all, it had always been a mystery, of course. Who is this? Who is this Messiah servant? Who is the Spirit of the Lord? Who is the chosen one who will come and free us? So Jesus' message here is truly a sermon unlike any you've ever heard or can ever hear. He reads from Isaiah, a prophet more than 800 years before, and he says, that's me. He was talking about me. This is, I am the fulfillment of this passage. His sermon was more than just one sentence, um, but it summarizes, this, this, this sentence summarizes the gist of it. This text is fulfilled. Jesus says, I'm the one with the spirit of the Lord. I'm the one anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And then the last phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
This is most likely an allusion to the year of Jubilee, as outlined in Leviticus 25. Uh, it was a special year. It was every, every 50th year, uh, there, there was a, a year of Jubilee where debts were canceled, where slaves were set free, where uh, all land went back to it, the ancestral families that held it. It was, a, it was a year of blessing and rejoicing in the nation. And Jesus reads this as part of what's being fulfilled in this moment, right in their hearing. The messianic year of Jubilee is here. God has looked upon and visited his people, blessing and rejoicing. Just like the angel said his birth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this is Luke's introduction to Jesus' public ministry. This is just after we see Jesus baptized, called the Son of God, come out of the wilderness, being full of the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit. And then he reads Isaiah 61 as his mission statement. And we will continue to see in the Gospel of Luke, this mission is exactly what Jesus does. He goes to who? The poor. The economically poor, yes. Um, But more than that, the the poor meaning those outside the bounds of God's people, outside the circles of power and influence. He was always in trouble for who he hung out with. He touches lepers. He ministers to Gentiles and to women. He heals the blind. He eats with tax collectors. He releases those captive to demons and to disease. And we'll see this over and over. He fulfills this mission that the Father gives him. But let's look at the the people's response. The people's response. Notice their response so far in verse 22. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? This verse is apparently hard to translate exactly, but I think the CSB does a good job at, at capturing two things, two important parts of it. One, uh, it, there's a positive response. These, these are gracious words. They, they recognize these are words of grace. And, and the people are amazed, it says. Notice it, it doesn't say they believe him, uh, but just that they're speaking well of him. So my, my, my look, at, look at how Jesus has grown up. Look at old Jesus preaching like a rabbi. Go get him, Jesus. And they're amazed at what he says. And then, then this, that's one thing. There's a positive response. They're amazed. But there's also this revealing question. It's this, isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, they certainly know that Jesus is legally Joseph's son. That's not the question. He grew up there. This is a question of identity. Identity. He's, he's claiming, Jesus is claiming he's the Messiah, the chosen one. He's claiming that Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is about him. But isn't this Joseph's boy? This reveals, I think, and the other gospels confirm this in their parallel narratives, the people's unbelief, the people of Nazareth's unbelief. They're amazed, but they aren't buying it. They aren't buying it. They know Jesus. He's a Nazareth boy. They doubt he can be really who he says he is. They're familiar with Jesus. Too familiar, it turns out. Now, in in this room, I, I know that many of you, like me, have grown up in church. Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life. Uh, since you can remember. That's, that's my experience. Jesus is very familiar to you. 
It's very familiar. Can I ask you a question? Is Jesus boring to you? Just honestly, you can be honest. I know it's church, but you can be honest. Is he boring? You go through the motions, you try to do what's right, but, but Jesus doesn't thrill your heart. He doesn't capture your imagination. He doesn't stir your soul. Not anymore, maybe. He's Jesus, he's the savior, yeah, 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 all that. Yeah, I know Jesus, right? Perhaps Jesus has become too familiar. And I pray that this morning you'll see him. We will all see him again for who he is. From Jesus' words in this passage, we can clearly deduce that the people of Nazareth had at least two wrong beliefs. Two wrong beliefs. First, they, they thought they had a special claim on Jesus. He's a Nazarene. Right? They, they thought, because of their familiarity, that Jesus would take special care of them. Second, they misunderstood his message, what he came to do. They thought the Messiah would come to save Israel, right? as a material, or as a materially save them, as a military leader to conquer their Roman oppressors. Right? Isn't that what the speaker of Isaiah 61 says? Right? That he's come to release the oppressed. We're oppressed by Rome. They thought, great, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, let, let's see what you can do for us against our enemies. They had these boxes that they put Jesus in. Oh yeah, he's from Nazareth. He's one of us. Oh yeah, here's the Messiah. Here's what the Messiah came to do. And Jesus is gonna challenge these misconceptions. Let's look at, at how he does that. Because he challenges both of these wrong beliefs directly. He senses their feeling. He knows he's the son of God. He knows what they think. And so he knows where this is going. And he challenges these wrong beliefs. In verse 23, then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He quotes a common proverb back then, doctor, heal yourself, to the effect of take care of your own, right? This is where you're from. Like, what are you going to do for us? This foreshadows the scene, I think, when three years later, the first criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus says to him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. What Jesus is calling out here and challenging is the, is the people's wrong belief that they have a special claim on him, that he'll especially take care of them because they're Nazarenes like himself. Jesus says, you're looking for me to heal like I didn't, like I, you've heard that I've been doing. He says, essentially, no prophet's accepted in his hometown and I'm no exception. You guys don't really believe me. You just want what I can give you. And he will not be manipulated to do anything for them. He doesn't, do, he doesn't heal there. He doesn't do mighty works there. You cannot manipulate or control the Son of God. You may think that because you're familiar with Jesus, and because you're a good person, because you read the Bible, you go to church, that you can coerce Jesus into saving you, into healing you, into setting you free from one thing or another. 
but you most certainly cannot. Beware. Beware of spiritual familiarity that breeds contempt. This, this shows up, this often shows up when something goes wrong in your life and you're filled with rage at God. How could he do this to me after all I've done for him? How could my child go astray after I took him to church and taught him what was right their whole life? How could my marriage end this way after I've been a good Christian all these years? How could, this, how could this happen to me? How could I have this suffering in my life? How could I have this disease? How could this, how could this happen after I've trusted Jesus? Your rage, anger. That's a bad sign. You know what that shows? Don't you see? It shows that you, you, what you, all you did, all you were doing is not out of love for Christ. It's out of a desire to put Jesus in your debt, to coerce him to do something. The thought is, if I live a good life, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then he's going to make my life smooth. He's going he's gonna to do his part. I'll do my part. He'll do his part. We'll be good. We got an agreement going on. And if that's the case, you aren't following Jesus for him. Who are you following him for? You following him for you. And that's not faith. That's not a right view of Jesus. It's not a right view of yourself. Nazareth couldn't control or manipulate Jesus. And you certainly cannot and I cannot manipulate or control the Son of God. He is God and we are not. He then goes on to confront their wrong belief about what he came to do. We'll, we'll see this misconception over and over again in Luke, and you see it in the Gospels. And this is perhaps why Jesus tries to keep people and demons quiet, right, as he's doing his ministry. Have you ever wondered that? He heals someone. He's like, hey, don't, don't tell anybody what happened. <laughs> it doesn't really work, usually. Uh, he tells that he has the demons be quiet. Don't, don't yell about who I am. They don't understand. They have a wrong box for what the Messiah does. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who came and who brought the kingdom of God, but his kingdom didn't come like anyone expected it to. He is the Messiah. He's also the suffering servant. He had to go through death. He had to give his life. And the disciples didn't understand that even to the very end, and certainly the people of Nazareth didn't either. And he actually starts confronting this one, I think, in his reading of Isaiah by what he omits. At the end, when he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the very next phrase in Isaiah 61.2, it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. And Jesus leaves that off. He leaves off the day of vengeance. Now, Jesus will certainly bring the day of vengeance he will come and judge the living and the dead someday. But that's not what he came to do then. That's why he left out. He didn't come then to bring vengeance. He came to open the door, to say the year of the Lord's favor is here. Right? I'm going to open up the gate wide to the poor and outsiders to set free those who are under the bondage of sin and death. He continues to confront this wrong belief by reminding them of two stories from the Old Testament, one from 1 Kings, one from 2 Kings of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah lived in a, in a time when Israel was ruled by the wicked king Ahab. 
and God used Elijah to shut up the, the sky. There was no rain for three and a half years. There's a great famine in the land. He sends Elijah to live by a river for a while and the ravens bring him food and he drinks water from the river. Uh, but after a while, the river uh, you know, dries up because of the famine. And so God tells him to go find this widow in Sidon, right, a foreigner. Go find this one. And so he goes there in Zarephath and Sidon. And he, he finds this woman and he says, hey, would you go make me some bread? And the woman says, well, I was actually about to go back to my house and use our flour, that last of our flour and oil to make a loaf of bread for my son and I so we could eat it and die. And Elijah says, God's gonna provide for you. Um, and he goes back to her house and she makes bread and, and her, her flour and her oil never run out till the famine's over, right? God provides for his prophet and for this widow. The second story is about Elisha. Elisha, another prophet, lived in a time when Syria was a great enemy of Israel. And in fact, Naaman, this, this man Naaman the Syrian, was the general of uh, the Syrian army that had defeated Israel in battle and had carried off many Israelite slaves. And there's a great, uh, if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is my favorite kid's Bible, there's a great story about Naaman in there. You should read it. Um, but, but Naaman, ha he had a terrible skin disease. He had leprosy. Uh, this general, and, and he heard actually from a Hebrew slave girl in his house uh, that, that there was a man in Israel who could heal him. And so it's a great story. He goes to Israel. He, first he goes to the king of Israel and says, I've heard that, that you can heal me. And the king's like, I'm not God. What can I do? I can't heal you. Uh, and, and Elisha hears about it and call, calls Naaman to his house. Uh, Naaman shows up in his big entourage and, and Elijah doesn't, or Elisha doesn't even come out and talk to him. He just sends his messenger out and says, just go wash in the river seven times. It's a great story. You need to read it. Uh, but the, so these are great stories, right? But God heals him. God heals this, this leper. But look at what Jesus emphasizes in these stories as he puts them right next to you. He parallels them, right? And how this challenges their misunderstanding of what the Messiah would do. Verse 25, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. The people acknowledge Jesus' words as gracious when they think that they will be the main beneficiaries of that grace. But Jesus, in these stories, points out that his grace, his love, his plan is much broader, much wider than they expected. And so with Elijah and with Elisha, Jesus says, remember, God saved the widow from Sidon, not the many Israelites. Or God saved the leper from Syria. He healed him. Not many of the lepers in Israel. My mission is not to show favoritism to my hometown or even to Israel, but in line with the prophets of old, my mission is to preach good news to the poor, the poor of the whole world. This is a challenge to the people, to their conceptions of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would do. And I wonder, can Jesus challenge you? He challenged them, can he challenge you? 
Are you, are you confrontable by Jesus? I encourage you to read and study the gospels because he will constantly challenge you if you do. That's where we encounter him <laughs> uh, in his reality, in his, his roughness, in his unexpected uh, grace. If Jesus is never challenging you, right? if, if, if he never changes how you think about something or how, how you, uh, how you, what you believe about something, maybe you aren't dealing with the real Jesus, but instead a Jesus of your imagination. Anne Lamott has this great quote. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. I think that's worth thinking about. I hope Jesus can challenge us. Let's look at the people's response, their anger, their rejection. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the cliff, edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. They're enraged. They're incensed. They can't handle this type of grace. They have these boxes that they've put Jesus in, these things that they expect of him, and when he blows those up, they can't handle it. He has to die now. He's not the Messiah we want. And before we judge them, let's, let's self-reflect. We always are tempted to put ourselves in the narrative and go, man, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that. I'd be the ones going, no, we shouldn't kill him. He's great. Right? Probably not. Real grace can have this effect. Now, this isn't a perfect parallel, but, but what if Jesus came to preach this morning here at Redeemer? Right, hey, we have a special guest. You may have heard of him, Jesus of Nazareth, everybody. Right? And he comes up. And, and let's, let's say he, he just said, hey, y'all, contextualization, hey, y'all. <laughs> I can tell I'm not welcome here. So I'm, I'm going to go and, and meet a prostitute in the fifth ward to heal her. I'll be eating lunch with some trans people to show them and tell them, proclaim to them the kingdom of God. Then I'll be down under a bridge with this, some homeless people, just giving them hope. Later on, I'll be visiting a corrupt money manager in his high-rise office downtown just to offer him grace. He needs it. And, and then I'll be spending quite a bit of time with some Afghani refugees in their apartment complex while I'm in Houston. And then he just walks out and leaves and doesn't come back. Right? We, he doesn't come back to Nazareth after this. We don't have any record of him ever coming back to his hometown. Grace is wide and deep and long and high. And many who assume they're in are out. And many of the first will be last, and the last will be first. He confronts their wrong beliefs with his grace, and they are enraged. And I think this response reveals the core of their problem. They don't believe him. They don't believe. They were so familiar with Jesus that they missed him. 
And so friends, let me plead with you today. Do not miss the Son of God because you are so familiar with him. Can I, can I say there, there are people in here, statistically, you could say there have to be people in this room right now who think that they are right with God, but who will find out on that terrible day of vengeance that they are not. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. And it's not just here. What is it? Matthew 25, I think the most terrifying passage in Scripture. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, right? What do they say to him? Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Many will say to me, it says, don't let it be you. Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You don't receive the Son of God by going to church, by being a good person, by being a good spouse or a good parent or a good child. You don't receive the Son of God by giving enough of your time or money to good causes, by voting for the right candidates in some election. You don't receive the Son of God by hanging around those who have received the Son of God. You don't receive the Son of God by where you live, by what ethnicity you are. You don't even receive the Son of God by growing up in Nazareth with the Son of God. How do you receive him then? How do you receive the Son of God? How do you have life? By faith. It's the only way. By trusting him. You have to trust Jesus yourself. Do you know in your bones that you're a sinner? You're a rebel against God? Do you feel your need? Have you thrown yourself, body and soul, everything on the mercy and grace of God? You can't play the fence. You can't say, if you're the Messiah, save me. I sort of believe in you. I mean, I went to church sometimes. No, 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 that doesn't work. You can't play games or manipulate the Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son and whoever, which is a great word, whoever, are you, are you one of those? Whoever's, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you trust in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus now, this moment? What is your hope? Can you sing in Christ alone, with, with, with integrity, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my life. He's my strength. He's my song. I pray that you'll trust him and that you, you don't have to feel the heat of the fires of hell before you realize that you never knew him. They drive Jesus out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff to kill him. If he won't conform to our expectations, he's got to die. 
But he, he just, it says, passes through them, which is great. I just love that we don't have any more information. I imagine he was just telling them the story, you know, about his disciples, what happened. And they're like, wait, you just, he's like, yeah, I just passed through them. Like, let's keep going. Okay, no more questions about that. Uh, he just passed through them. A miraculous escape. He had work to do, and he was invincible until the Father directed him to lay his life down. In this first glimpse into the the ministry of Jesus, I think we see a pattern that would repeat again and again. Jesus would show who he was. Some would believe, but, but many would not. And many of those who would not would try to kill him. And this happened again and again. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. They would be successful three years later in Jerusalem at silencing his gracious words. But just as in this story, he passed through them and went on his way outside Nazareth, he also passed through death. He rolled away the stone and he went on his way outside Jerusalem. Another miraculous escape. He lives. Jesus is alive and through his servants, he still proclaims good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, a release to the oppressed. And this is still the year of the Lord's favor. And so the question I think to leave you with is this, how, how will you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to him? I want to take us back to the cross when Jesus is hanging between the two thieves. There's two responses here. The first, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Manipulation. Selfishness. Pride unbelief, a a demand that that Jesus prove who he is by a sign for his immediate benefit. A second response. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A very different response. All the difference in the world. He knows his need. He says, we're receiving the just punishment for what we've done. I know I'm a sinner. He sees Jesus for who he is. This man's done nothing wrong. This is a perfect man. And then demands nothing. He demands nothing. Instead, he surrenders. He puts himself completely in Jesus' hands. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responded to the second. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble.
May he find us humble. Let's pray. Father, for this word, uh, we are thankful. Lord, we're thankful for that you challenge us. Where we have misconceptions of you, we all do. Would you blow those up and would you replace them by your spirit with a true vision of who you are? Lord, where we are proud, where we are arrogant, where we are self-willed, where we, we are blinded by our own pride and deceit, we don't even know what we need it, would you break us down? Would you reveal those places? Jesus, as we, as we see you for who you are, your grace, your mercy, it's so wide. <laughs> we thank you. Thank you that you didn't come for the, for the, the rich, <laughs> for the, the, those who had it together. You didn't come for the healthy, you came for the sick. And we, are, we need you. Oh, we need you. We are so weak. We are tossed to and fro. So we thank you that you're with us. We thank you for your spirit. Would you lead us? Would you lead us to respond to you now? We put ourselves in your hands and we can make no demands. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.